Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 14 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Nocter, and it gives me great pleasure to do another listener's questions episode where we attempt to answer the questions that you sent in to the Asking for a Parent at gmail.com and through the Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages. And just I want to say thanks very much for everyone. This is a busy week, and I know, you know, with the shops being open and the preparation for the big man's arrival and Christmas this year, that people are busy, but we've had a phenomenal response to the uh, amount of downloads, shares and, and questions and feedback and again we just want to thank everyone for doing that and for listening uh, and for contributing to the series this year it has been absolutely phenomenal so thank you for that and I want to hold you anymore and let you enjoy this week's Listener's Questions episode Hey everybody and welcome to Listener's Questions episode 14 of the Asking for a Parent podcast I met today's guest from the Asking for a Parent podcast a number of years ago when we were doing a recording for the Wims FM radio show. I met her with Niall Breslin in his studios in town, and they were both involved in the Lust for Life initiative. The true theme of that organization, I found this lady to live it out, and that was to be sound. Uh, she was welcoming, great crack, and I knew that we'd be working together at some stage in the future. That happened last year when we both worked on a TV series called Big Year in Big School on Virgin Media One. And since then, we've become good pals and have collaborated on other projects. And we have self-diagnosed ourselves as the dream team. Uh, this lady is a psychologist in NUIG, is the author of Love In, Love Out, a brilliant book. If you haven't got it, get your hands on it. And a major player in the success of the Lust for Life initiative. Yes, you've guessed it. Today's guest on the Listener's Questions episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast is the wonderful Dr. Mally Coyne. Mally, how are you? Thank you. Lovely intro, Mr. Dream Team pal. <laughs> How are you keeping? How's it going? I'm grand, yeah. Just uh, kind of working the last few days before Christmas and trying to keep everything going, but really looking forward to having a, a proper break with the kids and the family. I think we've all had a really, uh, everyone has had a difficult year in different ways. And I think this Christmas, hopefully we'll get a bit of chill out time. Who's at home for you, Mally? I have my husband, Pete, who's very patient and understanding uh, to put up with me. I have two kids, uh, Jessica, nine, and Amy, seven. So it's just the four of us. And how's that been this year in 2020 that's been thrown all these curveballs at us? How's it been for you? For me, uh, because I work in the public service, I've continued working since the very beginning, which has probably been a good thing for me because I've been busy and kept going with that. But the first lockdown was really difficult in particular because the kids weren't in school and it was, you know, there was a lot more anxiety around COVID then in terms of catching it and cleaning all your shopping and all that. And it was hard, as you said, we were parenting from work and trying to manage childcare during that time and keep the children busy was really difficult. I, I really miss my dad personally. He lives in Spain and he's just turned 80. So we missed his birthday party this year. We were going to have it in Holland and he would have come home about three times now at this stage. So that's probably going to be my biggest loss this Christmas is not being able to see him. And the kids themselves doing okay, managing lockdown two all right and everything going all right there? Yeah, I mean, I think this lockdown was just different for parents because kids were in school. And I, I kind of feel really heartened by seeing like my kids do hug other kids. I see them do it and I don't even stop them because it's just like I know they're in pods in school and things like that, but 
I just feel like for them, we, we have found, I suppose, that maybe the spread hasn't been as much around kids. And, and, and I, I think socially they have needed to keep up their contacts. And yes, they have less activities that they engage with, which is both a, a negative thing, but also a positive thing in a way for, for some of us parents and children to go back to a simpler life. But um, I think they're okay. They, they seem happy enough with the small bits that they have, the, you know, the one play date here, the one activity there, spending time with us, um, you know, kind of going through the ups and downs of life. But I think they're okay, okay and they're really looking forward to Santa coming because Santa is going to come regardless. And that's really important for children to know. For sure. And I just think, I mean, obviously, we both work in the mental health field. And I, I agree with you. I found the, the first lockdown much more difficult with the homeschooling pressures and everything else. But what I'm noticing in terms of, I guess, the reason why we started the podcast was that there was a lot bigger struggle maybe since, since September, or there was certainly less more calls, emails, that sort of stuff. And I wondered about, you know, whether it was a fatigue issue or that it was, you know, it was kind of getting a bit relentless or that the longer we were enduring the kind of, you know, COVID life or the new abnormal, it was getting difficult. Would that be your experience that things have gotten busier in recent weeks and months? A hundred percent. Definitely more referrals coming in. As I said, I work in the public service. Um, a lot more referrals coming in for children with anxiety, eating issues obsessions you know school issues things you know I suppose since September I think parents were you know kind of wondering how school would go for kids again and I think those issues have re-emerged because the numbers have gone up you know we've we've also been kind of thinking oh god here we are in a second wave of COVID and yeah I definitely think there's a fatigue and parents you know because children really look to their parents in terms of helping them regulate their emotions and modeling emotional regulation that when parents are unsettled, and it's not to say we blame parents, it's always a good enough parent we're looking for. It's that, you know, I think parents are really missing out on their usual contact with friends, with family, so are children. And I think that is the one thing, the social isolation in the last few months that has been really difficult. It's not for me, I don't miss going to the pub or I don't miss, you know, the restaurant I rarely went anyway I do I, I have really enjoyed I brought my daughter to a coffee shop in Salt Hill last Saturday night and it was the most beautiful lovely experience we just had a hot chocolate each and a chocolate muffin <clears throat> and she was just it was just so nice to be grateful for the very small things that you can have back and so I think that was really important to kind of just acknowledge oh thank god we can do this it's so nice and cozy and have our special time together yeah, no, as I say, I, I completely agree with that. And I think parents' coping strategies and, you know, things that we would use to keep mentally fit, we don't really have or have, certainly haven't had for a long time. And I think there is an element of of children looking to the parents and the parents kind of not having a lot of the answers around the certainty and all that. Understandably so, that's because the it's a global pandemic and it's the greatest uncertainty or unknown that we've ever lived through. But there is, um, yeah, I think you're right that that pressure on parents to keep things going, children to keep things going. And there is a, there's a fatigue element to it for sure, I think. Um, but you're right, that appreciation of the things that we can have back is hugely important. And I do, I think coming to Christmas and everything else, I think there is probably a re-recognition of that, maybe mm. collectively, that, 
you know, we're getting our value systems a little bit realigned, which is no harm, you know. But that said, I think if you've lost your job or if you've, you know, lost people you love through this pandemic, it's going to be a completely different experience. But yeah, I think children, the, the anxiety, the issues around the eating, the obsessionality, everything that you've explained completely kind of mirrors my experience in terms of the emails that I'm getting both from a practice point of view and, 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 and certainly from, from the podcast point of view, which is a lovely segue into the first question. So Very uh, good, Colin. You're such a Look at a that. Pro. We're so pros. Look at that. This is all our telly experience. We're, we're, getting us, we're getting into links. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but just a word on that. Wasn't yeah. that a brilliant show to work on? Big school. Yeah, and I want to thank you for giving my name to the producers, Coleman. I'll always be grateful for you for doing that. It was the best project I've ever worked on in terms of TV. Do you know, just to kind of even like to research, to look into childhood development, to have, you know, it was incredible to watch those children in action, to get to know them. I know lots of parents, lots of children even watched that that series and really just we fell in love with those children we saw how different personalities can emerge we saw the impact of covid they were in there on the day that the school closure was announced i think if anybody hasn't watched it yet hopefully you can still get it on you know on virgin media but it was what did you think yourself coleman i I just loved it it was an absolute eye-opener the the whole idea that we got that fly in the wall view of what is unknown to many parents? Do you know what I mean? I don't think many junior infants come in and give you a full account of everything that happened that day or everything that was going on. And it was just so unique and it was so it was so lovely to watch. And I, I couldn't believe the attachment that I developed to these kids who, you know, we wouldn't have had that much direct inclination or you know, links with them. We were watching them usually, but I miss it. I miss yeah going out to see them, which is really unusual. No, it was brilliant. I, I loved every minute of it. And I, I just thought the finished product was fantastic. So um, oh, they did it so well. They, yeah. Hopefully another series. Hopefully. Series two, let's go. Yay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah. that's on to the first question. So the first question is in, it says, hi, I'm really worried about my daughter. Since lockdown, she has started to engage in healthy eating, but over time she's eating less and less and becoming obsessed by exercise and Joe Wick's online sessions. She is a perfectionist and is in junior cert this year and is already stressing about exams. She's a very good child and I rarely have ever had to tell her off about anything. I'm worried about this food and body image thing at the moment and I'm wondering, have you any advice? Yeah. Any thoughts on that one? Well, for me, this was a, this is a quite a personal one for me. I suffered from anorexia when I was 13, 14. I very much fit in with that bracket of being a perfectionist of being worried about exams, of something starting as quite benign, where my friend and I decided we were gonna lose a few pounds because I was probably a little bit on the chubbier side. And then suddenly people started saying, oh, you know, oh, you look, oh, you look good. Or you get a bit of commentary, or I started to feel more in control because I was living in Milan in Italy and I really did not like living there. We had just moved. and. I just think that during this COVID lockdown in particular, you know, we were all talking about Joe Wicks, go on to Joe Wicks and do the exercise. And I think as you've talked about it before, Coleman, the lack of control, the the, the difficulty for young people has been huge in terms of not seeing their peers, missing out on really important rituals. And then I have found that I have gotten a lot more referrals in the last few months for kids who might have had pre-existing anxiety. So I'm wondering whether this girl 
this young person may have a tendency towards anxiety and they say about 15% of children do, you know, even by birth. And, you know, has it been a case that she has pre-existing anxiety where the healthy eating has become restricted eating, the exercise has become over-exercise, the thoughts about maybe losing a bit of weight or exercise have become more obsessional in nature. And I think there's no surprise, particularly with the loss of control many of us have felt during COVID and the lockdowns, that this has been this this girl's way of trying to regain control of her environment. And now it's become a pattern that, you know, she kind of, she, she may very well need help with. And I think one of the most important ways to approach somebody that might have eating distress, I prefer like a friend of mine, a psychotherapist friend and I who used to work in CAMS were talking about uh, kind of this idea of even using the words eating distress as opposed to eating disorder. I know eating distress isn't in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that, that we use, but it's kind of a, a, a gentler way of saying that there are people out there that may not have a very low body mass index. You know, they mightn't be in the eating disorder range, but that they do have problematic issues with eating and, and over-exercise. And I think for this mom to thread carefully because it's a coping mechanism that her daughter is using. And if you try to disarm the coping mechanism very quickly by saying, you have been doing this and I, you know, I all, you know, and be quite alarmist about it, that actually your child is gonna recoil away from you. So I think the most important thing is to thread carefully, maybe have a kind of a research about eating issues you know bodywise have an amazing website with really useful information i was only on it last week and they have lots of supports there as well so i think maybe kind of educate yourself a little bit more maybe about kind of the disordered eating and then thread carefully and when you do approach her you might say i've noticed this and i've noticed that but don't focus just on the eating because i expect that it's not just eating that's an issue there that your daughter may you know, her behavior may have changed or her mood may have changed and maybe really convey your concern for her. I think that's probably the most important first step. What do yeah. you think, Coleman? 100%. Firstly, I didn't realize that you had anorexia in your teens, Mally. Mm-hmm. Um, just learned that about you now. But I, I, I've worked with young people with eating problems primarily for the last 25 years. And so this is, this is an issue that we would see often. It, and it, you're absolutely right. Eating disorder begins with disordered eating. Um, and so it, it becomes as a distress and it evolves. It doesn't tend to happen overnight. But it, this is about control. This is about this child's ability to manage aspects of her environment. And when we feel overwhelmed or out of control, we tend to over control the variables that we can. And so the food, weight and shape become the focus of things that she can influence, you know, move more, eat less, weight goes down, uh, move less, eat more, weight goes up. It's a very mm-hmm. tangible sense of autonomy and mastery in a time where I'm guessing she feels completely overwhelmed in terms of all the other things that are happening outside of her control. So yeah. this is a coping strategy, exactly as you said, the, the eating is not the problem. The eating is the answer to the problem. Yeah. And so it's to try and find out what that problem is. And I, I would oftentimes reflect on one parent that said to me, you know, my daughter developed an eating disorder because of her coach. So she was they were going to a match and the coach said, you sit in the front because you're the biggest. And she said that caused her eating disorder. And I said, mm-hmm. no, that didn't. It was how she was feeling at the time when she heard the comment 
Yeah. That's the issue that's creating the eating disorder, not the comment itself. And so the Joe Wicks and, the, and these things are, they're triggers for, you know, for things that are we are utilizing to cope with distress, but they're not the origin of the distress. And that's why I think you're absolutely right. Don't focus on the food, the weight and, and the shape issues, but try and focus on the distress. And this is a child who I'm guessing is an internalizer. So she probably, you know, manages a lot of this within herself is probably not the same. She's not a kid who is dying her hair blue and getting piercings and climbing out windows at three in the morning. This is a kid who's probably very compliant and behave, behaves very well. Um, and the food is her voice. This is her way of saying all is not well. Uh, but it's a signpost to the problem as opposed yeah. to being the problem. And I think you're absolutely spot on. The issue of control, because of the pandemic, we have lost control over so many choices and things that we would normally have that, you know, and we saw it at the start of the pandemic when we all went out and bought bales of toilet roll. We were trying to control the controllable variables and saying, we don't know what's ahead, but if we have toilet roll, we'll feel better. Do you know what I mean? So mm. in terms of the food, weight and shape, if I can control something 95% of the time that I'm thinking about, and that's the obsession with food, weight and shape, then everything else just has to fall into the 5%. Rather than feeling 95% overwhelmed, I'm going to feel 95% in control. And it goes back to your absolute point. The eating is the coping of the problem. It is not the problem. And yeah. so keep an eye on this. I'd certainly be opening dialogue with her, trying to get hear this child's voice. Let's hear what she has to say. Let's see what's going on for her. A GP visit is probably, yeah. you know, at some stage, because I did lose my period for, oh, gee, probably like a year, a year and a half, like even when my weight had gone back up. Um, and I needed my sister. It was my sister who alerted me. I was hiding tomatoes underneath in a napkin underneath the table. Tomatoes like that is how kind of skewed your thinking gets when you're in this kind of trap of an eating disorder or de eating distress or disordered eating it you're not even thinking you're thinking everything is going to make you fat you look in the mirror you think you're huge it's it's it really really messes with your thoughts so i think treading carefully is probably the most important thing and and exactly what you said showing compassion and um not just focusing on the food yeah can i ask you mally how did you come through that do you mind me asking? Uh, you know what? I didn't get professional help, Coleman. I think mine just happened so fast that like within three months I had lost, oh God, I don't know, like 15, 20 kilos or something like that. I, I can't remember. Like really, really lost a lot of weight very, very fast. I was like literally moving every second of the day. As I said, I've written about it before. I've contributed to articles where I talk about it. it was like a military regime where my mind was the dictator. And how I got through it was my sister. I think sometimes it's like this light bulb moment. She said, you know, she had there was experience of eating issues in our family already. I won't kind of say, you know, who, what or whatever, but I suppose she recognized the signs and she approached me in a very kind of compassionate way. And I have no idea. It was like a flick of a switch where I realized if I continue doing this, I'm actually going to keel over because from the moment I woke up in the morning to the moment I went to bed, I was exercising. I was either exercising like and not eating. It took me like two hours to eat like the corner of a sandwich or I was um, doing a study 
But other than that, I wasn't doing anything else. My whole life had become this and I didn't really have many friends. I was just really deeply unhappy where I lived. It was really hard, but it was like a flick of a switch. For me, I was really lucky. I didn't need professional help, but had I gone on maybe for another couple of months, I would have probably ended up in hospital. And I have spoken to somebody recently where their child very quite quickly went into disordered eating and did end up in in hospital but for that child with the right professional help and I'm not saying every child needs to go to hospital because they don't but you know I think the GP is a good one to kind of encourage your child because you're kind of even getting their bloods getting their their physical body checked to make sure to see how they are and to just get that started I think is a good idea yeah and I, I think again it's a really complex issue and I, I dare not simplify it but for me the the eating is oftentimes the language used to communicate the distress and if you can find the child's ability to use their voice so that yeah. they can use words instead of food to communicate what they how they feel and what they're struggling with and get get the attention the nurturance the care and the recognition and the visibility by via the words rather than the food it certainly can go a long way. And I think that's probably in terms of this caller, this person who sent in this email about trying to hear the voice as opposed to listen to the food. But, and I guess this is probably a thought that has evolved for me over the time of working with young people with eating disorder. You know, we, we misunderstand it as a desire or a pursuit of thinness. What it is, is a fear of weight gain, you know, as opposed to, so even looking at it from that point of view, that it is not a desire to be, underweight but a fear of being overweight that completely alters the understanding of the motivation behind the behavior it is motivated by anxiety as opposed to being motivated by vanity or some sort of you know misconstrued notion of uh, of perfectionism so uh yeah so just uh, for this person you know uh, again listening out for the voice trying to understand that control is at the center of this not focusing on the food yeah, and trying to understand it, as you said, that the disordered eating is the the management and the coping of the problem. So don't disarm the coping strategy or don't disable them from accessing it, but try and help them to find other ways of managing to cope. Exactly. Brilliant. Excellent. So next question. I'm emailing about my nine-year-old son and his tics. We first noticed these when he was about three years of age, and they've continued throughout the years. Initially, it was a mix of vocal and motor tics, but now it seems all motor, spinning around, shaking his head quite hard, kicking out his legs. He hasn't been too bothered by them up until now, but has recently become more self-conscious, and some of his tics are causing him pain. I'm just wondering what we can do to support him. Should we be bringing him to see somebody about this issue? And if so, who would be best place to help? Apologies if the issue has been addressed already. I'm working my way through the podcast at the moment. The podcasts are great, learning lots from them. Well, thank you for that. But I'll start with this one, Mally, yeah, don't mind. Sure. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, a tick disorder is thought to be a neurological condition. And so people have a variety of motor tics and vocal tics, which can be, they're on a spectrum. So they can be very, very mild kind of shoulder twitches that you'd barely even see to kind of grunting noises, etc., to something far more complex, which could be a kind of a, a complex movement of the head, shoulders, neck to uh, kind of vocal tics where somebody might actually say words or, or profanities, etc. The tic disorder and Tourette syndrome commonly coexist, but not always. A tic disorder is, uh, as I say, it's a neurological issue, which is made worse by anxiety, tiredness, stress. 
So we'll oftentimes see that the tick will be kind of, it'll worsen at certain times in the day and, and obviously managing the lifestyle of the person will help them to manage it. A tick is very much like an itch. It's like something you need to do in order to relieve a sensation. So the pre tick is where the, the, there's a, a kind of sensation that needs to be responded to or answered to through the, mo the, the vocal or motor tick. It's like you have a tickle in your throat or an itch in your back that you need to scratch it. Uh, and, and so there is, is involuntary in that way. But what we can do is we can coach children to manage ticks better. And so there would be children who maybe will go to the bathroom in school and they will tick for three minutes and get that kind of relief and then return back. Or we can offer them substitute behaviors for the tick, which might be something sensory that they'll grab or hold or squeeze or chew or something like that, that will almost kind of remove the emphasis on the tick. And so they can get the same relief, but with uh, in, in less obvious ways. The, the issue here for me is far more about his self-esteem, self-worth and the impact of his tick behavior on his self-value. Uh, and I think as he gets older, it does become more complex in the social arena. People do notice, you know, they notice difference. They notice things a little bit more. There may be more comments, etc. And so for him, this is really about trying to keep that stuff intact. I would think that there are strategies that he can get support with. Uh, I think your child and adolescent mental health service are the service to go to around this and they will help you. And in some cases, and you know, because there is a, a neurological element to it in cases sometimes where tick, tick disorder is more severe, medicine might be used to try and help that. In other ways, it's just about coping strategies around trying to get relief or find ways of managing the tick behaviors or the tick urge a little bit better. But the worst thing that you can do is give out to a child for ticking mm, because it yeah. is not their fault. This is an involuntary issue. You can bring their attention to it and help them to support them to manage the sensation differently um but you can't get them not to feel the sensation so the a child who gets in trouble for their ticking behavior or is seen as misbehavior or seeing as somebody who's not listening or not doing what they're told that can have deleterious impacts on their self-esteem self-worth and self-image as well so it's really in this case it's trying to understand it trying to come from a supportive strategy from a parent's point of view and trying to access the the help and support that he would need to to try and manage this the good thing is most tick disorders you grow out of them uh, we tend to not take the same level through to adulthood and it, it is a condition of childhood that we would see far more tick disorder in smaller children than we would in adults my brother yeah no that's a great answer coleman my brother had a tick i remember when we were younger and he kept kind of clearing his throat and it just happened <laughs> I think he had a number of ticks. I remember being at piano lesson with him and like literally he was kind of clearing his throat, doing this other thing, swallowing, you know, a couple of different things. And I remember the piano teacher going, will you just stop, you know, and that's the thing, you know, he did grow out of it. And I think a lot of the time he, we didn't get, I don't, he didn't, we didn't get support for it or anything. He did grow out of it, but you know, you can have, you know, in a situation where you're in school and you're meant to be sitting and, you know, or else as you're getting that bit older, as you said, that it can be, you know, in an environment where people tell you to stop or there's negative reinforcement. I always think that with any type of issue like this or, you know, that that negative attention kind of, you know, can make things a whole lot worse, you know. And I just wondered, Coleman, is there also a role for a pediatrician here? Or do you think CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health are the first port of call for a GP to refer to? 
Yeah, I think I think CAMS for, in this instance. Okay. Uh, the pediatric piece may be because this child's experiencing pain. You okay. know, there there yeah. is that. But where I would see children going through exhaustive physical testing for an, a tick disorder, you know, to be to see if there's something in the throat or they're getting all these scopes and things like yeah. that. But in actual fact, like your brother, it's it's a, it's a tick issue rather than an irritation issue or something functionally or anatomically wrong. So. In my case, I would be skipping the middleman, going straight to the CAMS issue here. Okay. If, there, if, if there is complications, then they can find it, their, their way back to it. And normally, you'd say rule out the physical first. Uh, but in this case, this sounds to me uh, very clearly to be a tick disorder. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that would be my tip, would be to, to go straight okay. to CAMS if you can. The, okay, next question. Uh, hi, Colvin. I'm wondering if you can help me. This year, I lost my job in the entertainment industry, and my husband was working in the hospitality sector. It has been on reduced hours for the last 10 months. Our money situation is much different than other years, and we simply cannot manage to facilitate Christmas the way we usually would. In some ways, the restrictions are a blessing, as the usual crowd will not need to be fed. However, I do want to make it special. As a family of five, we've been in each other's faces all year, and I would love to make Christmas enjoyable this year and not just have it as another day. Uh, that's, that's a wonderful question, and I'm guessing very relatable to a lot of people. Um, I think from the point of view, I'm firstly, sorry to hear that you lost your job, and, and both those industries, entertainment and hospitality, have been dreadfully affected by this, and I think a, a special note of, of, of empathy and sympathy with, with people working in that space. Christmas wouldn't be the way we usually would, so I'm guessing this is usually a, a time where there's a huge crowd comes over to this house, it's a big festive thing, um, but obviously with the restrictions, they won't be able to do that. And, and mum is kind of saying that's a blessing because money is tight and they wouldn't be able to put on such a spread as usual. But making it special uh, and not making it another day. And, and Mally, I think this, is, this, come up, this question has come in a few times in different guises, but this probably encapsulates it best. The cabin fever of the last number of months where you have been in each other's faces and you're trying to make things, you know, a little bit different and... A journalist asked me about two weeks ago, you know, Coleman, how do we make Christmas special this year? And I, I replied by saying, you know, you do know I'm a psychotherapist, not a wizard, you know, from the point of view of it is this is going to be tricky. Uh, but uh, I, I'm going to hand this one to you, Mally, if you have anything that you can contribute here for this, this mom who's clearly, you know, she's struggling with her own, I guess, her own potential to impact on Christmas this year and, 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 and understandably stressed about trying to make it as special as possible within those limitations. Yeah, I just really feel for this mum and her husband in terms of, you know, as you said, the loss of their jobs and reduced hours. And I think it's been really incredibly hard for a lot of people um, in terms of, you know, because we do, our jobs aren't just money. Our jobs are kind of our livelihoods are what keeps us going as well or keeps us sane a lot of the time. So I, I really feel for them in that way. I suppose the first thing I'd like to, to start with is that if we have this pressure for things to be special and things to be amazing, I think that's where sometimes it can become a bit too much, you know? I think it's it's an issue every Christmas, not just this Christmas where people kind of, you know, you watch the ads on the John Lewis Christmas ad or whatever ad, and you're thinking, oh, Christmas is a time of happiness and everyone is smiling around the Christmas tree and everything is going hunky-dory. The kids are eating their meals. and But at the end of the day, Christmas is a time where all routines are out the window, which means 
you know, immediately like people are out of kilter when routines are out the window. You are in each other's faces the whole time. I think it's really important to note to this mum and this family that they managed to get through the lockdown two lockdowns and it's incredible that they they did manage with the situation that they were going through and I think if we put too much pressure to make it special it can be too much for us to think and I think if we go back to what is it that children and I, I love your intention mum of wanting to do that because you clearly love your family and your children but I'm just wondering if this year it might be possible because you don't have other people coming over that even just it being the five of you will be special in itself that children I've realized this year from my own kids who were involved in lots of different activities before the first lockdown almost every day they had something on and during the weekend we were cu- we were buzzing around the place you know there'd be this and then a birthday party and a play date and there, there was always something on they'd even say to me mommy what are we doing today but they don't even ask me that anymore do you know because on Sunday we have chore time in the morning where we get they get their chores their bits and pieces done because we spend the morning kind of cleaning up the house or whatever and it needs it and then in the afternoon, they love doing a bit of Roblox. I don't know if your kids are into that, but they like doing some of that video game, which we let them have on a, on a Friday and Sunday for a few hours. But it's kind of like, I think the making it special is being with you. And when rupture happens, because rupture will inevitably happen, rows will inevitably happen this Christmas, that we try to repair them. And I always talk about the beauty of repair, which is, you know, if you kind of, you know, start shouting or you kind of lose your temper or whatever, and that you would go back to your child and say, mommy was a little bit stressed last night. That's why I shouted, I'm sorry. And then leaving it at that. Don't say, but you shouldn't have done this or this, that and the other. If there's a moment of learning that can come another time. But I think, you know, for your children, being with you and seeing you with a smile on your face will be what's special to them and it's time with you quality time you don't have to be like playing with them the whole entire time but it's kind of like having the balance of you know a bit of quality time like my kids love playing monopoly we play the game and then we take a photo of it and go back to it you know a day or two later or whatever so it's kind of like just short bursts of quality time with them and then really kind of maybe kind of just being in the moment and accepting that it's not all going to go perfectly because it won't in any household not even yours Coleman right oh no we have the perfect <laughs> <I'm just laughs> but uh, I, I I think from the point of view that the perfection is the enemy of the good in this one mm. you know and I, I have always have this image of this kind of mom standing in the middle of the the kind of kitchen and everyone's fighting saying why is this not magical I you know, know. <laughs> And it's it, 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 in terms of the, the the pressure, as you say, you know, everyone in Christmas jumpers roasting marshmallows on the no, open fire. Like no. nobody has that. Like, but I, I can remember the the Christmases I remember are the ones where my dad got a puncture when we were coming back from my granny's and turned over on his ankle and it was swollen up and we were all sitting in the back of the car laughing and giggling really? at being okay. stuck on the side of the road and you know it was all those kind of. They're the ones that stick out, actually, the kind of memorable ones. I don't remember things as much as I remember experiences. And so, yeah. you know, I think moving away from the things that it's for the first year, I, I spoke about this already during the week about, you know, 
the the message of all the Christmas movies is that it's not about the presents, it's about presence with yeah. a C, you know. Yeah. So the the idea that that this is our year to kind of live that out almost in some respects, you know, because of the pantos and the Santi visits and all those things that are normally part of the, yeah. the fanfare aren't there. We do have to rely on each other a little bit more. But I completely get this parent's view of, you know, you're looking at each other all year round and you know the cabin fever piece. It's just it's try and make it as good as possible. But I, I would say to you, just because it's unfamiliar doesn't have to mean it's less. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And again, and, and Christmas is a ritual. We, we return to the same thing every year. This year is going to be a little bit different, but maybe it'll stand out for the right reasons um, rather than the wrong ones. Um, but I would say manage your expectations. You know, try not to be perfect and you know, don't get stressed if, if the magic doesn't seem to be happening at the pace that you want it to. I agree. And it's about moments, Coleman. And I do think we we do operate better with that little bit of routine. And I always talk about parental self-care. So I think for the parents to, you know, maybe have a little bit of time to themselves every day where they can kind of refill their cups and that they the family, if they can, hopefully we'll have good enough weather that we can get out every day and go for a walk. You know, just even that little bit of kind of routine not that you're you're putting pressure to have loads of routine but just even getting outside could be a great help and for you to get some time to yourself to recharge your batteries 100 100 great advice next question uh thanks to the podcast uh it's the most relevant and real parenting advice i've heard so thank you very much it's very decent of you i hope i've not missed the asd questions i'm a mum of four uh, uh 11 to 2 uh, and work part-time during covid two of my children, uh, my 11-year-old and 7-year-old boy were diagnosed with ASD, fitting the profile of Asperger's. They don't have the classic features of Asperger's and go to mainstream schools, etc. All the challenging behaviour uh, happens in the privacy of our home. I have lived with their behaviours for years, so although the diagnosis wasn't a surprise, it was difficult to receive during lockdown. My concern is for my 11-year-old who wants a mobile phone. She's can manage social situations well, bar the nuances and the currency of slagging, commentary, judgment, that pre-puberty girls have in the yard at school. Uh, there's only one other girl in her class who doesn't have a phone. I'm so stretched with the meltdowns, working on transitioning, the rigid thinking that I'm afraid I won't be able to deliver the scaffolding that a mobile phone requires. I would appreciate any advice on this topic, especially regarding mobile phones and ASD girls and managing the pressure of her expectation and disappointment at not having a mobile phone. I don't let her have access to my phone for texting, FaceTime, Zoom, uh, as I have sensitive emails information from my work on my phone and I don't want her to see those and she does get time on a tablet or device every day any advice appreciated so we have uh, mum here with four children and uh, some of which have ASD and she's wondering about this 11 year old girl uh, with who has rigid thinking and some features of that and her use or, or her introduction to the world of mobile phones and online technology. Uh, a common one, I'm guessing, Mally, any thoughts? Three words, trust your gut. That's what I would say. You know, I, 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 and I'm, you know, this year must've been a very difficult year for you, mum. I think, you know, you work part-time in pediatrics as well. So like you're, you're obviously aware of, and you've been living with these behaviors for many years and that's really tough, you know, to have two children diagnosed with ASD and you have two other kids as well. I think the way she said, I'm so stretched with meltdowns, working on transitioning and rigid thinking that I'm afraid I won't be able to deliver the scaffolding that a mobile phone requires. I think there's a, a deep knowledge here of from this mom of the fact that a mobile phone does require scaffolding. 
and that 11, I think for a child who doesn't have ASD or who does have ASD, I personally feel that it's okay. That's this is my personal opinion. Right. But I think it's it's too early. I wouldn't be letting my 11 year old have a phone, even if she says all my friends have a phone. I'm sorry. Like, I just don't feel comfortable with that. My, my child is going to be 11 in a year and a half. I just wouldn't don't think she'd be ready for that although I'm sure she'll be putting pressure on me and she has already put pressure on me already about TikTok and things like that on on my phone but I just think that if this child already has difficulties with social situations and maybe takes things literally you know and there is a lot of slagging and things that go on on snapchat and all of that and you know girls saying oh because i even in my child's class she's nine there is so much like drama going on in terms of we're best friends and now they're friends and this is all like face-to-face drama and like my daughter comes home and she might tell me i had a row with this person today or this this is going on and i think being that age is really difficult anyway at age 11 so I, I just feel like sometimes parents are afraid when their child says, all my friends have this in school. And by the way, your kids are always going to say all my friends because, you know, we used to do that with our parents and my daughter comes home regularly, both of them. Oh, all the kids in my class have this. And I think trust your gut because she may not be ready for what comes with a mo- with an unrestricted use of a mobile phone and that's just my and i'm not saying we should be afraid of technology she obviously has a tablet device every day and i also think maybe like slowly but surely that she should get to know the different technologies and and about kind of safety with technology and that you know people can say mean things and they might make a joke but when it's typed it sounds different than when it's said out loud and, you know, people do, aren't always who they say they are. For us, like Roblox has been kind of beneficial to us because our kids play it in the kitchen. So they can say, oh, this person's asking to be my friend. And we'll be like, but you don't know them. They're, and they, they're pretending maybe to be a five or, or a 10 year old child. You don't know their 10 year old girl. They could be anybody. So I think the kind of education around it and the slowly but surely approach, but my gut is telling me that this mother knows that it's probably not the best idea yet. I don't know what you think, Coleman. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I think from the point of view, regardless of the ASD piece, I still yeah. I would agree with you. I think 11 is very young. This is a, the result of pester power because, you know, because you're the only kid in the class who doesn't have it. With technology, we tend to allow the lowest common denominator to set the pace. So the first parent to cave and buy the phone for the nine-year-old creates the pressure on everybody else. Yeah. But we shouldn't always have to follow the lowest common denominator. And my guess is, as time reveals, if you are seeing yourself as the technology unpopular parent, time may prove you right, you know, from the point of view of that. But the issue around, you know, first of all, foremost, this lady's very clued in. The yeah. idea that she understands that scaffolding is part of buying the phone is hugely important. And I'm yeah. really impressed by that because most people will get the phone, give it to the child and say, come back to me when you have a problem, as opposed to seeing that it's like buying a puppy. You know, the work only starts there when you get the device, you know. Um, but she, um, so she is really, she's clued in. And I, I think probably... Uh, more clued in than most, and uh, I would go with you, trusting your gut on this one. And I, I, I'm guessing, Mally, you might agree with me. I've, I've had never had a child come to me for therapy because they have not had enough technology. 
I have had a few come to me because they have had too much. So uh, in, in that sense, I would say, and again, not to uh, technology is not good or bad. The usage is, but it is about I, I would if this girl has a tablet, she has access to yeah. things. It is used through the home. I think that's fine for where she's at at the moment. And I don't believe you need to pressure into escalating to get her own phone because I think she has that access and, and it's mediating. It's just going through the steps and, you know, developmental trajectories in ASD, are, 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 that's where the issue is. They're, they may be a little bit behind the curve uh, in social and emotional maturity and things like that. And so you're, you're just taking precaution in terms of that and, and trying to manage it for her. So uh, I, I'm with Mally on this one. I would be trusting my gut and making the call on when it feels right as opposed to when I feel pressured to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Next question is another Christmas one, Mally. We've got a few in about this. My parents really want to see my children this Christmas, but I'm worried about COVID and them getting sick from my children. I know this is my anxiety, uh, but I have suffered from anxiety over the years and I struggle to manage it. I do not know what to do. My children want to go to their grandparents too and are begging to go, but I'm worried that I will just be too stressed. Any advice? Oh, that's a hard one, Coleman. Like the reason I wrote my book and I called it Love In, Love Out was this whole idea of I had run so many courses for parents on helping children with their anxiety and for children with their anxiety. And I just found that there was nothing, there wasn't that much that addressed the impact of parental anxiety on children and how when a parent is anxious, it can really you know, impact on the home. And I can be anxious at times. As I said, I am a person with a more anxious disposition. So I, th I think it's totally natural for this mom to feel like, you know, she's, we, we over the last, you've said this yourself, over the last nine, 10 months, 11, 11, whatever months, you know, people who are anxious anyway, our anxiety has just been heightened by the fact that we've been told in every message around us, don't touch this, don't go to your grandparents, you watch the news, you know, you see how many people are in ICU, people dying in nursing homes, you know, you really, when you have an anxious, you know, brain, you are more, you are, we all have a negativity bias where we attune more to threat, we attune to threat as human beings to keep us safe, and that's totally natural, but some of us attune to threat that little bit more, and that's people who are anxious, so I do really feel for this mom in terms of, you know, being afraid that her parents would catch it off her kids but I, I and, and I think my compassion towards her first what we do obviously with anxiety and you know yourself is kind of testing people's fears and seeing what is almost bringing a thought to trial as you say that's cognitive behavioral therapy where you look at the you know the relationship with, between your thoughts your feelings your behaviors and your physical sensations and I suppose I'm just wondering uh for this mom you know, what is the evidence in a way, you know, if you were to kind of look at the evidence, you know, have has anybody else gotten sick from your children? Do you, you know, obviously your kids and the grandparents really want to see each other and you want to be there on that day. Are there any ways to manage your stress around that if it's going to go ahead and happen? Maybe you need some support around your anxiety, generally speaking, anyway. Maybe this is a, a sign to you that, you know, in the next few weeks or, you know, that, that you may need a bit of support by talking to family, friends, getting a bit of professional support around anxiety reading up a bit more about it because i suppose anxiety is a very physical feeling and it affects your this is a very doom and gloom thought about oh my god this terrible thing is going to happen and it most likely 
won't happen. And it's about trying to manage your anxiety at Christmas around that issue, because it would be a shame if you were to miss out on having your, you know, particularly because we haven't seen them all year round, it would be a real shame. So like my heart goes out to this mom because I have heard of parents not even, not, not, I'm not saying not even, I remember I talked to a parent who didn't want her child to go back to school in September and kept the child home for a few weeks in case that the child would catch COVID. And I, I can understand that, you know, but I, I just think maybe this mom, this could be symptomatic of a bigger issue that she may need some support with. What do you think, Coleman? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's this classic dilemma around the mental well-being cost and the physical cost. So, so you can we can eliminate a physical risk, but at a, a kind of a well-being cost because we don't get to see somebody or we don't get to meet somebody. And weighing that up is really tricky, you know, in terms of, you know, is it worth us going or not going? And I think everyone around the country is struggling with that. But you're absolutely right. It is about the lens with which you see this problem is is important to address whether your anxiety is driving your decision making or your common sense is driving your decision making yeah. and that's yeah. why as you said you know tuning into that are you overly threat focused are you overly fear focused and is that is that making the decision for you so if that is the case then you need help to manage your own anxiety before the event or trying to manage it during the event and trying to get through it so that you know we can make decisions based on informed consent or we can make decisions based on fear and threat. It's trying to work out which of those it is. And in, in comparison to the last person where we were saying, trust your gut, maybe when you're highly anxious, your gut isn't the most reliable from that yeah. point of view. So it's maybe trusting the facts uh, and, and, you know, as you say, put it to trial a little bit. But yeah, difficult situation. It is a call that you will have to make. But I would just be tuning in and, and just unpicking the anxiety a little bit and see what percentage of this decision is being made by the lens of my worry or the reality of the the risk uh, yeah. and kind of working it out in that way. The next question is similar, Mally, so I might just jump into that one. It says, yeah. I would like to know how to manage Christmas this year. I have relatives coming who have very different views on the COVID risk, some highly anxious and cautious, and the other in-laws who are somewhat reckless and feckless. How do I manage these on the day? So this is obviously mum uh, who has, you know, her husband's family and her family coming on the same day. What she thinks some are highly anxious and cautious and the others are reckless and feckless. So there might be people hugging and people, you know, jumping two meters away. So she's nervous about the, the atmosphere that might be created here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to put that one over to you. Matt. Yeah, I'm just wondering, Coleman, uh, do you know what the restrictions are in terms of Christmas Day of how many people can be in the same uh not like, entirely I'm sure so, i'm so confused or something like that i don't know Is it, I, uh, yeah okay so it's it's probably okay you know i'm so confused i'm really like now that we've gone back to level three i'm like what was level three and <laughs> i'm really I, I find people are probably confused but anyway but there is something different coming in on the 18th or something where you okay about the three or, households yeah. and, and travel outside your county I, well, okay. let, let's assume that no great deal. There's of, no kind of problem with that. Yeah. You know, my first kind of like my first instinct there was, do you have to have them come at the same time? Like, seriously, you know, is it possible to have some in the morning or like earlier and the rest of them later on in the evening? Because I don't know, I, like it, it just seems like a, a lot of people coming in with different viewpoints you might have you know because I think what COVID has really done to us Coleman the last year it has really brought out our judgmental kind of like 
because when we're feeling threatened and we've all felt threatened in ways this year, our judgments, our anger come out. You see it on Twitter. You see it, you know, you just see it like socially. It's been very difficult for people. I have found like I did a segment there a few weeks ago on the impact on friendships. And I have found that, you know, with friends who are more cautious and then with other friends who are less cautious, you have this kind of like discomfort thing going on because it's like, oh, well, you know, you're seeing other people and I'm like totally masked up and not doing that. And you're seeing people, you know, there's different, like very reasonable people have become unreasonable in ways at times this year because of this threat. So I, I just, I think it's a really difficult one. And I think maybe it might be a good idea to with, you know, to maybe preempt, maybe talk to the people that are in your family about what it's going to look like, Do you know, because I have heard of, you know, suggestions of if your grandparents are cooking or somebody's cooking that you'd be in a different room or people would be wearing masks or I think it'd be good to just preempt rather than leave it to the day and see are people wearing masks? Are they not? who's, you know, who's cooking the food, who's not? Are the highly anxious um, relatives okay with the fact that the others are much more kind of blasé about it? I think preempt it. And if you feel that this is going to be too stressful for you, because I'm feeling stressed even reading that, and that's only three lines. Um, I kind of think Christmas hopefully should be as, you know, I, like I, I'm not saying stress-free because obviously cooking dinner and relatives are, are can be a stressful thing, but I think maybe planning that out and seeing how how everybody what their expectations are for the day what do yeah. you think 100 percent. I, I i hadn't thought of that but when you were talking i was just nodding away because yeah. i think you're absolutely right what what this has come up is is interesting i was doing a, a thing last week on workplace well-being and yeah. they're talking about when we return uh post-covid there are going to be different people in the workplace who are going to have different views on yeah. their degree of comfort with you know there could be you know, Coleman's back and he loves, he missed it. He's hated working from home and he's hugging everybody. And, you know, Mally's <laughs> back and she's, you know, PPB'd up to the eyeballs and is, has a two meter stick around to make sure nobody goes near her. So <laughs> the, the idea is that you'll have to manage those different yeah. expectations. Um, I think your idea of planning it is a good idea. And again, I just said about, you know, it's not about planning for the perfect Christmas, no. but trying to avert a disaster is no harm by yeah. saying, look, you know, Mally's a little bit anxious about this, Coleman. I wouldn't be lunging in with the hug when you meet her. And, you know, she would like to wear a mask and that's absolutely up to her. And, yeah. you know, saying Mally Coleman hasn't been outside the door in six months and he's a little bit eager. So just keep your distance there with him or you don't know, give him any alcohol <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> no invitations but I, I think from the point of view of it is about yeah just trying to pre-plan and and have some sort of level of agreement and I was kind of saying around the workplace having a kind of a clear policy and I don't mean that for your Christmas dinner that sounds dreadfully stale but from the point of view of an awareness of where other people are at yeah. the best way to avert kind of stepping on toes or literally kind of breaking boundaries and with COVID, we all have different boundaries. But I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things I did notice and have been noticing is a kind of a, a pandemic of crankiness, you know, about things. You know, we've kind of got, you know, oh, they're not doing this and the house parties and the golf gates and the thing. And we get all kind of upset yeah. about things. But even in kind of road rage and things like that, where there's our tolerance of, you know, people and cues and, you know, there's a kind of a, I know there's always that, but I think 10 months of being cooked up has left us understandably cranky, I suppose, from the point of view of, and we have, 
we've probably missed a bit of our social tolerance. Do you know what I mean? In terms yeah. of when you're in the workplace and you have mm-hmm. to negotiate other people, you, you kind of get used to that. I think perhaps, you know, the working from home and being isolated has left us a little bit intolerant of other people a little yeah. bit. And, and again, that's the, that kind of social avoidance or the, the kind of the social skill is a muscle. We have to keep using it. And if we don't use it for a while, it gets a little bit lazy. I think that's probably something to be mindful of. But yeah, I that's... think that's really true, Coleman. I think maybe over Christmas, it might be a good idea for people to have shorter visits with people because I'm even thinking of my husband's parents were meant to go there for Christmas Day now they haven't had my children uh, you know in the house with them I think maybe once during the summer but most of it was outdoor visits but like my kids are going to drive them mad do you know what I mean like they are you know so like even the noise and the kind of like so in a way it's probably better to kind of plan for shorter visits if you can have that because you are right we are less socially tolerant now and I'm thinking of older people with you know younger children it's not that you have to be kind of you're having your younger kids uh, behave all the time but I think all of us even the thought of that mother's question of having relatives that have different opinions coming together I think we shouldn't maybe expect too much of ourselves and that we need to kind of dip our toes slowly back into social interaction I'm going to borrow a phrase from my father, which is, uh, it's always better to stay too too little than stay too long. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, let me tell you, my mother-in-law's one. Visitors are like fish. They go bad after two days or three days. <laughs> like she tells you right there when you've been there for like two days. You're like, great. <laughs> time to go. First time to stink. <laughs> okay, last yeah. question. Last question. Uh Thanks so much for producing the podcast. It's great. I uh, love the style of it, etc. Uh, I am a mother of two 13-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. The issue I'm shouting SOS about relates to my daughter. She has started secondary school and I'm finding the transition too difficult. I'm finding the whole trusting her to find her way difficult. I've been happy with my parenting style up until now, although she's always held her thoughts and feelings close to her heart since day one. She's a real closed book. Over the years of her childhood, I've been able to work my way around that, read the signs when necessary and support her. I think I've held a healthy balance between supporting her to follow her own instincts and guiding her. Since she went into the first year, she's unrecognizable to me. She had no phone until last August, and now she's glued to Snapchat, listening to uh, hard-ass rap full of profanities and extremely sexualized lyrics. She's aligning with the girls who are the social media zombies and already said to me a few weeks ago, Mum, you know the deal we had, which I wouldn't drink until I'm 18. I don't think I'll make it. We had agreed an amazing reward if she did, didn't did drink until she's 18. I was an underage drinker myself, and I'm not unrealistic about this, but I really wanted to give her some kind of a carrot to not drink for as long as possible. She's also mentioned weed in conversation. She's reassured me that this is not until second year. Uh, this It's a great school, great reputation. I understand the point you made with your chat with Sarah Carey that it depends more on the year that the child lands in than the school in general. I completely understand that she's pushing her boundaries. She's trying to find herself and trying to fit in so as to feel belonging. But I really dislike the behavior she's coming home with. She's suddenly really disrespectful. She wants to have her headphones in all the time. She drove me crazy yesterday as we popped into the shop and she stayed on her phone throughout. I don't think to be, I don't want to be nagging constantly. She doesn't want to go to bed till after 11 at the earliest. I've been to get to one of those parenting apps to control her Snapchat. I wish I didn't have to, but I, I feel if I didn't, 
She'd be on it constantly throughout her homework, sitting on the couch, simply at every possible moment. When I've disabled Snapchat or threatened to disallow it altogether, she gets so upset. She cannot bear the thought of not having it. Chronic FOMO at play, but Snapchat is just bitching platform. And if, if left alone to do as she feels, it, uh, she feels happy. She's amazing, really healthy, exercises loads, her sport. She's very academic, although this has begun to slide already. What I'm finding impossible to work out is if I should let her explore this new personality she's adopting with her new group, lots of bitching, exclusivity and social media image. Look at us. We're having such a laugh, although I can hear the strain in her laughter. All about the perfect fun girl image. Do I trust that this will all settle and she'll find friends that are not so judgmental and are kinder, more responsible or more respectful? Or should I ban Snapchat? Go with my gut. Hold the reins tighter as she makes this transition herself from childhood to teenager. I've met some of her new friends, by the way. They seem lovely in my company. I do know that two of them are the youngest of families of four, so it would be far more streetwise than her. I want her so much to feel comfortable in her own skin. I feel, although I was acutely aware of this throughout her childhood, I haven't nurtured her self-esteem enough. I'm seeing the end of this first term as perhaps a good time to address these issues with her and put in place some changes for term two and beyond. I'm considering arranging a meeting for her head uh, class head teacher to get some information on the school's experience of this first year group, in particular her class, or should I let it roll, trust her and just be in the background? I would greatly appreciate your advice. My question would be, does she remind you of anybody you know? <laughs> Because I'm just kind of thinking, you know, there are aspects of what this mom is saying that are classic teenage, you know, finding yourself angst ridden stuff going on. What's at, what's kind of concerning me, though, a little bit more is that she seems to have unrestricted use of a phone. And I, I would just be concerned about that because uh, you know, whilst we were all kind of rebellious when we were teenagers and younger and maybe finding music that we loved and testing the boundaries with our parents and saying things that maybe weren't, you know, the most appropriate and seeing how our parents would react. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, maybe this mom, I'd love to know how what this mom was like as a teenager herself and maybe whether her fears are impacting on what she what she sees being the trajectory for her daughter. Do you know? So perhaps, you know, perhaps this is this is the way her daughter is expressing herself at the moment. But hopefully, she'll pull it back after a few months and not be, you know, maybe as rebellious. Um, and I know that if you kind of go up against a teenager and you know kind of disarm them that's not necessarily the way to go I think it's about trying to build on your relationship and your special time together and I and I think sometimes I've heard I, one of the best quotes I ever heard from a psychiatrist was that we over parent our under 10 year olds and we under parent our over 10 year olds in that you know because our teenagers are telling us to go away and get out of their room that doesn't mean that we stop parenting them all of a sudden, that they're going through such a huge period of brain development and so many changes are going on, so many pressures going on, particularly if you add in the phone, which we didn't have when we were younger, that they do need to be parented, but th they need to be parented in a different way. And obviously for this mom who has her 13 year old is her first teenager she's ever had and then she has a 10 year old boy so I do really feel for her I just kind of wonder about the uh the use of the phone and whether that's unrestricted she did say that you know she should she trust her gut and maybe you know stop the use of that phone at times and I think 
perhaps if that's what her gut is telling her, that's really important. But trying to build on the positivity of their relationship together, maybe kind of saying, you know, and, and I suppose so that your child is more open to tell you things. And they say with a teenager, it's more about shoulder to shoulder conversations, more casual conversations when you're in the car, you know, just brief snippets of conversations rather than face to face. Can I talk to you about something and being really, really serious about it? But if you do, if you are going to put down a boundary and it's really important that you put down boundaries as well with teenagers, that you explain why you're putting that boundary down and you do it in as calm a way as possible. What do you think, Coleman? I think it's a really hard one, this one. I really do. Yeah, this is this is the this is the, the skill of pacing your parenting, you know, and this yeah. is this. And this is trial and error. You know what I mean? You will be overly strict and you'll get it wrong and you'll be overly lenient and you'll get it wrong. And it's about trying to, to get that and respond. And it goes back to your point about repairing, you know, you're repairing your errors as you go. Nobody knows how to do this one right. And anyone who's claiming that they have it sorted, they don't, right? So the issue here is, the first thing I'd say is this is a kid who's come from sixth class to first year in a COVID year. Yeah, so that's true they well. didn't, they missed out on the ceremonial finish of primary school. You know, they missed out on the confirmations and the jobs and the trips and the tours and all that sort of stuff. So I really feel for this group. I think they are, they were kind of catapulted into secondary school in a very different secondary school than perhaps they were imagining it to be. And yeah. so first of all, that's one level of, of kind of consideration I would give to this. The second piece is absolutely normative and developmentally appropriate for a child to want to individuate. So she wants to be her own person. She's playing around with identities. She wants to be, uh, cool. She wants to be in with the in gang, and and you know we all went through that. We changed identities to, like coats. You know throughout that time, we were rockers for a year, we were ravers for a year. We went to this, we went to that, and that's part of the process. But where we where we sometimes miss out on this one is we overfocus on rules and underemphasize values. Yeah. Right. And values are for me much more sustaining than rules are. So the value of family relationships that you don't speak disrespectfully to each other you don't dismiss people you don't be rude you don't no you can have your own issues and I acknowledge your own distress and I'll fully acknowledge and condone that it's tricky to find your feet and find relationships but by being kind of hostile or rude is that's not acceptable from the point of view of that and so the value is that we treat each other with respect regardless of what we're going through but we try and find ways to kind of communicate that a little bit better. So, you know, what you're saying to her is this child, she is very young to emotionally regulate, but also to physically regulate. So you're giving her a device that is, you know, it, it's, it's, its appeal is that it's unregulatable. That's the thing, that, that's the attraction of it. And you're giving it to someone who's poor at self-regulating. So we have to step in and do that for them. And we have to manage that uh, and, and coach that. And that will be uh, unwelcome. And it may be there may be reactions to it and you're ruining my life and everything else. But from the point of view, I, I'm always reminded of one parent that I met a few years ago, Mally, and she her daughter was 14, I think, at the time, did something she shouldn't have done uh, and was taken off the, the, the technology for two weeks. And the mum rang me after a week saying, Coleman, she's unbearable. She's hissing and swearing and cursing and slamming doors. And she, her ch siblings, her younger siblings are afraid. And, and, you know, she's a nightmare to live with since we took the phone off her. I'm thinking about giving it back. And I yeah. was saying, well, you said two weeks. If you could hold out, that'd be great. And I didn't hear anything from the, the second week. But then when she came in, the mum said to me, the second week I got my daughter back. 
Wow. We smiled, we talked in the car, we had, and we'd done things we hadn't done in ages. We watched Strictly Come Dancing together and all that sort of stuff. And she said, I hadn't seen that child since she was 12. Oh. So the idea that once you get through the detox yeah. of it, that the other things get managed. So, and I, I think many of us are afraid to regulate for fear of the detox, but the detox yeah. will pass. You know what I mean? And again, about values, like say, for example, if you want to create a culture in your family, you have to put effort into it and you have to work on it. So if we say, right, every Sunday at 11 o'clock, we're going to go for a walk. For the first six weeks, your teenager will be rolling their eyes and this is ridiculous and why do we have to do this? And they'll hate it. But after six or seven weeks, it just becomes what you do on a Sunday morning and yeah. it becomes part of the routine. So you have to create cultures. But creating a culture based on values as opposed to rules mm -hmm. uh, is a, an easier sell in my book. But at the same time, this child is uh, finding her feet. She's finding her way. She needs her own secrecy. She needs her own life. She needs her diaries. She needs her thoughts. Uh, and she needs to be given an opportunity to develop privacy uh, and her own intimate relationship with herself. But at the same time, she needs to be managed, supervised. And that's the parenting dilemma. That's mm -hmm. the pacing piece. That's making the calls. And that's what we get wrong all the time. And if we're learning from what we're getting wrong, well, then we're doing the right thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not about doing the right thing, but as opposed to getting the right result. And this, in the next number of years between mom and daughter here will be in a relationship that will evolve. Mm -hmm. It's not a relationship that you have to create. You know, yeah. it'll happen through the relationship. And the more understanding the mom is the more open the child is going to be. And so as the adult in the room, you have to kind of set the tone. But boundaries are important. We can't limit. Uh, and, you know, nothing. Some, sometimes misbehavior is explainable, although it's not excusable. And again, it's trying to find that difference between I, I can explain why you feel this way, but I'm not excusing that that's the best way to manage it. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is welcome to five years of topsy turviness. I know. Uh, and also the, the relationship you've had up to this point. I know you, your child may be unrecognizable to you at this stage, but that she's still your daughter. She's still the baby you held in your arms. And, you know, all the all what you've done to build into that relationship up to now isn't lost. And I remember the first time I didn't want to hold my hand, my mother's hand walking across the road. And that must have really hurt her feelings when when I was a teenager. But now I can't get enough of her. And, you know, when I when I was maybe seven, 17 out of that teenage thing, I was back into holding her hand. And I, you know, I can't, you know, it, it, it's a phase, as you said, and you know, we don't want to stop them individuating, but exactly, I love that, the focus on values as opposed to rules. I think that's really important, Coleman. And I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. All that stuff is in the hard drive. You know, it's yeah, there. It's, it's, it's there. accessible, you know, um, and you put that work in. And again, you know, parent-child relationships aren't created in a conversation. You always say this. They evolve over multiple conversations and multiple experiences over time. And I love that message because it's a fulfillment issue rather than a gratification one. You know, you don't have the sex conversation once. You don't have yeah. the the smoking conversation once or the drinking conversation once. You have them multiple, multiple times in in very subtle and, and probably more obvious ways. And don't underestimate how the impact of that labor, that those conversations are making a difference. They might not seem so in the moment, but gradually over time, you're you're implanting thoughts and feelings and values in your child. And although they might be fighting them and butting in, it's sinking in on some level. And, 
you know, as, as Mally says, maybe later in life, you can't get you can't get enough of holding your mother's hand from the point of view of that. And yeah, and, and uh, I had a mother contact me a few months ago who said her fr- her daughter kept telling her to F off out of her room. But I kind of just said to the mom, it's important to kind of maybe keep trying. But you c- what you can do is knock on the door and say, I'm here for you. And, you know, you can kind of say, I've noticed you know, something, but in a very non-threatening type of way. Or I, I, I loved when we had tea together. Can we do that again? Or even take an interest in her Snapchat or the things that she's doing. You know, in the music, she's. I know it's very difficult maybe to listen to that kind of music, but to take an interest in it a little bit. She might think you're totally uncool, but it's like, you know. And then this mother came back to me and said that her daughter smiled like she hadn't smiled in months when the mother had kind of taken her fear away and actually approached her and said, like, I'm here for you. You may not want to talk to me now, but I am here for you anytime. Do you know what I mean? And just to keep that open. Yeah, and that's a lovely conclusion to it because I think what we've said over the the parenting podcast where now all the teenager conversation is sometimes we need to give them what they need rather than what they deserve. And I think that's a really important message. Mally, we have run out of time, but that is absolutely fantastic. I absolutely love that conversation. I always enjoy our chats, and that, that's going to be up in the top five there. That was brilliant, and I, I, I loved all your insights into to all the listeners' questions there today. Just to give a heads up, if anyone has any more questions, the next speaker we have on Wednesday, the, the, the final parenting interview episode is with Shane Smith, who is a wonderful speaker about children's sport and elitism and competitivism and I would strongly recommend any parent who has a child who plays sport or anyone who's involved in it to listen to that episode it's going to be a cracker and then on the final listeners questions episode uh, I have my sister who's going to be my guest and she's going to interview me about my uh, experience of growing up and childhood and interesting so that'll be a nice finale to the season Um, She also is a parent of two autistic children, so if anyone has any questions around ASD or autism, you can get those into us as well. And any questions about the build-up to Christmas or everything else. And we'll finish up on this one, and then we'll be back in January for season two, hopefully uh, all going well. But if you have questions, get them into askingforaparent.gmail.com. You can get us on Twitter or the Facebook or Instagram pages, and you can private message us through any of those platforms. But until then, I just want to say... Dr. Mally Coyne, Dream Team, co-producer, my pal and friend, thank you so, so much for your time this morning. And I really enjoyed that. And I know the listeners will have gotten a lot out of it. So thank you very much. And uh, happy Christmas uh, to you and your lovely family. And we'll be back together, no doubt, in the new year, doing some more work together and collaborating on it. So thank you for that. And to everybody listening in, take care. Bye for now and stay safe.